Yeah, yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, very good. Well, we'll go ahead and pray, and then we'll, we'll go ahead and get started. Our Heavenly Father, we are just amazed as we experience the world that you've made, the things that we've seen, things that we haven't seen, and just all the grace and all the mercy that you have shown each one of us through your creation and also just in each one of our individual lives. We ask, Father God, that each one, each journey that is here is one that is glorifying to you and that this evening we each get challenged just a little bit um, different ways so that we can bring glory to you and we can bring your honor and that, Father God, that you would always be top of mind in all that we do. We just ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. And Andy, we'll go ahead and let you get started. If you don't mind, come up and read and put us through. All right, so First uh, Timothy, this is uh, chapter 6, verses 11 through 20, through the end of the book, right? Yeah, that's it. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you make good the confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal might. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty or to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Command them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. O oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, turning aside from godless and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some, while professing, have gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. As always, thank you, Andy. Appreciate it. Well, we're at the closing statements of First Timothy where Paul is bringing challenges, warnings, and instruction to his disciple Timothy, as there is much that was going on here as we've talked about for the last several weeks, concerning the revival responsibilities of the Ephesus church. There were a lot of things that needed to be addressed. Timothy, um, both Timothy and the Ephesus church had special places in Paul's heart. Paul had spent a lot of time with the church prior and also, Timothy was kind of his beloved uh, disciple. I hate to say it, but maybe his favorite, it uh, appeared to be. But to the many challenges ahead for Timothy 
and the Ephesus church, Paul reminds Timothy he needs to mature as a leader of excellence, not just being a leader, but one of excellence. And that's where some of the challenges had been for Timothy in the past. In some cases, a solid redirection was needed on some of the existing circumstances that was hindering obedience, um, Christian living as they move forward. Timothy had allowed some important matters to get out of control, and Paul in 1 Timothy was a valuable and incredible solution-driven resource to help steer Timothy and the church back on track in the appropriate areas or sustaining what they were doing correctly and then also getting obviously back on track by glorifying God and fulfilling the church's mission. Now Andy had um, read verse 11. I'll do it um, as well just to make it uh, clear on what we'll be talking about here at the beginning. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Now, these things that are being talked about here, sometimes we'll have a tendency of kind of reading through them and not really dissect them. So we're going to dissect the things that he was to do. And really the reason for that is to ask ourselves, are we being called to the same uh, circumstances, which in a way I believe that we, we are. Now, when first talked about man of God, was commonly used in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, it described Moses, the angel Lord that appeared to Samuel's parents, the prophet who brought judgment on the house of Eli. It described the replacement of Eli, Samuel, and many more. But only Timothy is so labeled man of God in the New Testament. That certainly is kind of meaningful and interesting. The word flee is very graphic and paints the right kind of picture that needed to be taken when it came to sin. Um, if you want a definition, if you like that type of thing, that would be to run with rapidity as from danger to attempt to escape away from these areas of sin that had gotten out of control to hasten from danger or unexpected evil. We're to avoid it, to keep at a distance from it. What's kind of hard is that sometimes we're almost drawn to some of these sinful areas, even in our own lives. And really what uh, Paul is really uh, impressing here is that sin is nothing to be messing around with. But we'll miss the point if we think that this is a call for Timothy to leave the church or to flee from the church. That's not what's going on here. No, Paul is emphasizing to Timothy that there are things mentioned earlier in chapter 6, like from last week, that he and the church are to avoid, including conceit, which was in verse 4, impurity, which was in verse 5, a discontent spirit, in verses 6 and 8, foolish and harmful lust, in verse 9, and the love of money, in verse 10. There was a whole lot listed in there, and it's kind of amazing that, um, and it probably shows you how quickly we can get off track if we're not careful as a group of believers. Timothy was to warn the church to flee the previously mentioned destructive things, to just avoid them, flee them, turn away from them. So he and the church's spiritual walk would continue to grow and go in the right direction and stand the important trail of serving God and really importantly, obeying Jesus. We don't hear a whole lot about obeying Jesus too much anymore because obedience is not very popular. 
when we talk to not just unbelievers, but when we talk to believers, the minute you start bringing up obedience, you start hearing the words of, that's too pharisaical to say that we have to do this or do that. Well, the area of obedience is something that we all know, and we all know we have different areas in our lives where we do need to be more obedient to our Lord. As a matter of fact, as I was mentioned this morning by Roman, talking about loving Jesus and all that's, that goes and entailed with that, we're told that obedience is the number one way that we show our love for our Lord. Paul directs Timothy's uh, thoughts on behaviors that lead to excellence and guards against the many temptations and the dangers and improperly loving this world. I don't have any of those issues, but I bet you guys do, on loving this world. As a matter of fact, um, I'm still into the conclusion that the biggest idol I have to deal with is myself. That we have a tendency of being so focused on our world, our own life, that we sometimes love this world to the point of danger. So there's six key words that came up on what Andy read, and these are key words, and I'm going to do something a little bit different with them. What I'm going to do is give you a very, very short synopsis of that, but then also give you a verse that you can kind of hang on to, and then, then some words are a quote from other godly men throughout the, the ages. Righteousness is the first one that's mentioned. That is an attribute that belongs to God. That is God's attribute. He's the lawgiver, and it manis it's manifested in his law. Therefore, righteousness is a wonderful gift from God to humanity through his love. It is the God-given quality imputed to man upon believing in the Son of God. And it's important for us to realize righteousness on his own sake, we can't get there. But it is imputed to us, given to us, and quite frankly, as a responsibility that we have. That is justice and integrity in our dealing with others. So righteousness is a quality of being right in the eyes of God, including our character or our nature, including our conscience or attitudes, the conduct or actions that we, we do. All these are steered in righteousness, and also the command or the words are words even righteous? And when we spend time in just hearing ourselves talk, do we have righteous talk? If we don't have righteous talk, the Bible's very clear what that means. That means that it reveals our heart. And if we have a hard time when it comes to righteous, uh, righteous speech, we first need to get to our heart and we need to turn to God and Holy Spirit to help us there. Righteous is therefore based upon God's standard because he is, after all, the lawgiver. So Isaiah 64, 6 gives us a little insight here. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Powerful, powerful words from Isaiah. Now, Isaiah was always pretty powerful in the words that he said. But when I read this verse, and I really kind of thought about it a little bit, I thought how true this is. And when it talks about we fade like a leaf 
and our iniquities like the wind take us away from righteousness, keeps us away from righteousness. John Calvin had a great quote. We shall never be clothed with the righteousness of Christ except we first know assuredly we have no righteousness of our own. And so even though we usually won't admit it, we sometimes think, well, you know what? I do a lot of good things. I'm a relatively good person. The problem we have with that is that the standards we set are way too low. And the ones we're supposed to have righteousness with, and what happens here, John Calvin is saying, don't think for a minute that righteousness comes from us. The second word was godliness. Godliness, the quality or practice of conforming to the laws and to the wishes of God. Devoted and moral uprightness. Now, when we became believers, we became Christians, were we serious about taking upon, the, the, upon us to have the practice to be able to do the laws and to really want to do God's will or wishes? We're to be devoted and moral uprightness. To be wise is to live in godliness. Proverbs tells us that many times. Reflecting the nature of the kingdom of God in the course of everyday life. But this definition I kind of like best because it's easy. Godliness is God-likeness. And can we look at our lives and can we say, yes, I can see my life as God-likeness. Or do we see a little bit too much of ourself or maybe a little bit much of our rebelliousness? Now, we just read last week, 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, have nothing to do with irrelevant, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness of value in, is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life, also for the life to come. So if we are trying to live a God, godly life, we actually benefit today and we benefit tomorrow and forever. Now there's a quote from somebody you all know, Charles Spurgeon. The eagle-eyed, argus-eyed world observes everything we do and sharp critics are upon us. Let us live the life of Christ in public. Let us take care that we exhibit our master and not ourselves so that we can say it is no longer that I live but Christ that lives within me. A lot of times these are written and uh, uh, quoted as being, well, these are for the serious Christians. I'm going to rephrase that just a little bit. Say it's for any Christian. Any Christian that has, that has turned their life over to Christ, has repented from our sins, believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we should all be living knowing it is Christ within us that does it. That's why when... And this is really cool about the conscience. Conscience really helps us because it lets us know when we're being disobedient. lets us know when we're being selfish. And the world wants to shut down a conscience. But we should pray, Lord, bring it on. Bring on that conscience. Help me be sensitive to your word. Now the third area comes into faith that Paul was calling Timothy and the church and you and me to. Faith is the trust in God and in his promises is made through Christ and the scriptures. 
by which humans are justified or saved. Also, the concept of dependability fits nicely here. Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Now, I don't know about you, but I kind of like the senses that I have. I love the senses of sight. I like to see things. Yet, uh, there's um, huge warnings that if we rely on our senses that way without the help of the Holy Spirit, we're going to have a hard time um, being able to understand what true faith is. Corey Ten Boom, I know I've quoted her before, but I, I love this lady's um, testimony. If you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within you, you'll be depressed. But if you look at Christ, you'll be at risk. And I thought, what a great quote for under faith. And do we rely on our faith? Do we rely on the Lord Jesus Christ? Or do we rely on, well, church is a thing we come to on Sundays. And, uh, you know, we fit it in when we can. I'm busy during the week, you know, so I fit it in when I can. And it's kind of interesting. And what I really like about Corey Tim Boone, if you ever, ever have not read her biography, you should. It is absolutely amazing. And what you'll see is, is that she went through the most incredible nightmares you could imagine for a little girl. And what, what she always points back to is Christ, always, the love of Christ. So after that comes love. And you've heard of agape love. I'm not going to spend much time going into love right now. But expresses the kind of love God demonstrated towards his elect. That's the kind of love we're to have for each other. That's a pretty powerful love. We are to have unconditional love towards God and also towards others. You know, it's kind of one thing when things are going along okay in life. You know, this is going well, this is going well for us to go, God, you're all right, I'm on your team. And then when things aren't going right, it's a whole other world. And what is being warned here is that regardless of your circumstances, you love one another and you love God. That's what Paul is really saying. Now, you, you know this verse, but it fits perfect here. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8a, if you like. I like the letter thrown in there. Love is patient and kind. Are we loving and kind and patient and kind? Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not reject at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Now, I don't have problems with any of those. Just don't talk to Anne, okay, and uh, ask her. But these verses here, when you put them in the context of, isn't it amazing that Paul was sitting here giving excellent instruction to that church to be loving each other. And everything he had said in those uh, five chapters before then, and everything is going to say in completing tonight, the entire book is based on the love for the brethren and the love for God. That's the basis for just about everything you see here. Now, Dwight Moody made this statement. If you have got the true love of God shed abroad in your hearts, we will show it in our lives. We will not have to go up and down the 
the earth proclaiming it. We will show it in everything we say or do. And so if Dwight Moody is correct in this, I believe he is, it really says that if we really don't have a life of love, if we don't really show love towards others, towards, towards the Lord Jesus Christ and our love for the word, if we don't show that, we really need to go back to the very basics of are we really saved? Now, small group here tonight and say, are we really saved? That's kind of offensive, Gary, to say that. However, the Bible tells us we're to check often to see if our calling and election is sure and if our life is not in the right direction. Now, John MacArthur had the perfect saying, I never forgot it. Since he said it, I'll forget it now. But, but anyway, he made a saying. He said, you know, it's like really righteousness and all the things we're talking about here, godly living or godliness. It should be the direction of our life but it won't be the perfection of our life. We won't reach that perfection here. But if we don't have a constant growing of love for others, if we don't have a constant uh, um, sense of, I love God more today than I did a year ago, we need to really ask ourselves, are we? Not only are we saved, but are we obedient? And remember, there's very famous um, gospels that are passed around that say all you need to do pray this prayer and you'll be a Christian well it sounds nice looks good in a pamphlet but in reality we actually are called to do other things which I'll mention here in a minute that really calls us truly to salvation now the next to last word was steadfastness I think Andy you had a different word for that was a persevere uh, yeah persevere which I kind of like that word better when you read that. I thought, yeah, that's awesome. It's meant to be firm and unwavering in your faith. Unwavering in your faith. Now, that is a battle all by itself. My faith is always being challenged. My faith and the way that I react to things, many times I'll think after and I'll go, I never should have done that, never should have said that. And worst of all, I never should have thought that. And, you know, our pages. Uh, patience and endurance under pressure tells us a lot. James 5.11 gives us this. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That was James 5.11. That right there would be an awesome study. That, that uh, verse right there. So steadfastness from John Owen. Here's another one. If you haven't read anything by John Owen, do get some things from John Owen. It's a Puritan, amazing um, insight. Steadfastness is be uh, in believing doth not exclude all temptations from without. When we say a tree is firmly rooted, we do not say the wind never blows upon it. And all the winds, Anna was out camping two nights ago up in the mountains. And the winds were going from 40 to 50 to 60. And things started moving around. Things started falling around. All sorts of things were happening. She had a wonderful night's sleep that night. And they got up at, what, 5 o'clock to, to get out of the camp? Or, you know. So, um, you know, our lives are challenged. We should look at each one of us. And you know what? There might be something like... Um, 
something that maybe bothers us about one of us. Much better to be thinking about, I have no idea what each one of you are going through. I have no reason or right to be judging you because you behave in a certain way. We are to love others, remember, unconditionally, and to be helping each other be steadfast in our faith. This should be the place where we get pumped up. And I don't mean falsely, and I don't mean rah, 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 but I mean this is a place we ought to be able to come. It's a safe haven to find truth. However, what you'll find is the best safe haven is God and his word. Spend enough time in his word, and that helps you when it comes needing to be steadfast. Now, finally, there's gentleness. This is sensitivity of disposition and kindness of behavior. Humble needs to fit in here. Founded on strength and prompted by love. Philippians 4, 5 puts it so simply. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now, maybe or maybe not, do you like to memorize verses? I would suggest you learn this one. It's simple, short, but boy, what a promise. And what a thing to remind us. The Lord is near. No matter how that wind is blowing, the Lord is here. Matthew Henry said, the meek are those who quietly submit themselves to God, to his word, and here's a tough one, and to his rod, who follows his directions and comply with his designs and are gentle towards all men. We're to be gentle to the men we like. That's not what was said here. Those that there's a benefit for us being nice to, no, we're to be gentle to all men. That's all believers, all non-believers. And we have to be very careful about that. And only through the power of the Holy Spirit can we do this. So as you see the five things that we reviewed, which I'll go backwards just because it's easy with notes, gentleness, steadfastness, love, faith, godliness, and finally, righteousness. This is what, I mean, just think. In those words, Paul is telling Timothy, boom. Now, he could say boom to Timothy because Timothy lived with Paul. They traveled together. They established churches. I'm sure he saw Paul getting stoned. You know, I mean, literally. They lived together and so Paul was getting to wrap up this letter, and he was trying to say, you're in a fight. How do I know that? Because of the next verses. It says right here, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandments unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he'll display at the proper time. He was the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, 
whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Wow. Great theology in there. Paul's reminding Timothy that he is in a spiritual battle in Ephesus. A huge spiritual battle. It's a terrible town. I put it in likes of kind of like San Francisco. I mean, the lifestyles there are just very, very radical. That's what went on here. They had special idols. If I'm not mistaken, this was the same town that they had a, a, a stone monument to the unknown God. Was that Ephesus? Where was that? All right, next door to. <laughs> so I'm fighting the good fight was a right motivational charge and one that Timothy had committed to at his ordination, which probably was the laying on of the hands of the leaders of the church. I also read in some commentaries it could have been his baptism. But in verse 12, you'll see that I'm, I'm going to go with the laying on of hands. Timothy was agonized like one does in a serious military or athletic event. That's what you're up against Intense. We fight or contend our way to heaven. It's funny. I thought we were saved to be able to run through the tulips and get right into heaven. No, it's a battle. We contend day in, day out, moment by moment. There will be conflicts of corruption and temptations, including the powers of darkness. Cautious. This does not mean to strive or work for salvation. That's not what's being taught here. Salvation is a given to all believers when they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and repent from their sins. Remember I talked about a little bit earlier that there is responsibilities in salvation. It says in Mark 1, 14 to 15, it's all Christ. But now after John was arrested, John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaimed the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent. Learn to love the word repent. Number one, we don't hear enough about it as we talked about earlier. But number two, that is part of the road on believing in the gospel. Now, we cannot repent on our own. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit. Believe in the gospel. We can't do on our own. It's only through the Holy Spirit. But there's an, an interesting, I don't know if I want to call it tension, but there kind of is. We do have a responsibility. We're told what we need to be doing. We need to repent. We can't just sit there and say, well, that's a works doctrine, so I'm not going to repent. We're told many times in the Bible, like we were right here, that repenting is very important. By the way, repentance, is that something we do once? How about twice? Three times? Or a million times? <laughs> we repent every time we need to repent. A million is probably an underscore. Just like Jesus' bold stance before Pilate. Remember that was just read? Timothy and you and me are to follow Jesus' example to stating truth regardless of what the cost may be when bearing witness to the truth. Jesus answered, 
My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. This is John 18, 36 to 37. This is uh, Jesus speaking. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, you're a powerful guy. So you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. I'm going to read this one more time, this part right here. Does this have anything to do with you? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness of the truth. And I'm going to suggest, if we're one of the elect, we have the same call. We're to be a witness of the truth. And we go back to the Lord Jesus Christ on where that truth is. It's not in whimsical sayings. It's not in feel-good music. But we get it from the truth when we are letting people know that Jesus is the only answer. Then we found out here about the keeping of the commandment implies the entire revealed word of God as Timothy is called and was to proclaim and protect it. He was to proclaim it and protect it. So are we. When we hear individuals misusing God's word, we should be bold. Particularly as then family members. That's not popular, but we're not here to win a popularity contest. Ultimately, I once heard this horrible thing, it's just a side note, of, and it's maybe not totally scriptural, but an individual was in hell, and this believer, who was a nice person but wouldn't share Christ, right? And that individual looked at him, like I said, it's not a true story, looked at him and said, why didn't you tell me the truth? And that illustration has stuck with me forever. I've, I've just, many times over the years I've lived, I've gone, that person, can they say they never heard from me about Christ? And again, it's kind of like a battle. It's kind of like a sporting event. The main goal we have in life, there's nothing more important we can share with somebody, even if it causes tension within the family. The keeping of the commandments implied the entire revealed word of God. So when you see that in your word, think about the, the, don't think of a commandment. Think of the entire word of God. As Timothy is called and was to proclaim and protect it, but in the William McDonald's Believer's Bible Commentary, which is a great one, by the way, believes it is the, chain, the charge to maintain the Christian faith. We need to maintain the Christian faith. You know, we talk about, oh, we live in such a non-Christian world. Well, shame on us for allowing that spirit to take over. We should be loud. We should be vocal. We should be, be pointing out false beliefs. We're certainly living it now, aren't we, with um, when it comes to abortion? I don't know. I, I'm not real proud of being part of when abortion come about, 1960s? Is that about right, late 60s? 73. 
So what was happening in the 60s was the softening of the world, and by the 70s, Roe versus Wade passed. I'm not real proud of having been part of that generation. I don't know if you've even thought about that. What's our generation most known for? Killing millions of babies. Then I asked myself, and what part did I play? So Timothy is being told here to maintain the Christian faith, but Timothy was to remain focused on pleasing God and not pleasing man, which is a practice that almost always leads to compromise. Paul emphasized that God the Father is the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords here. These are important words. This phrase is also noted when Jesus returns on a white horse for judgment. In Revelation 19.6, and it's on the robe uh, on a sigh. He has written on it, King of kings and Lord of lords. But also in Revelation 17.14. However, in 1 Timothy Paul further clarifies that the King of Kings and Lord of Lord here that he's talking about refers to God the Father. Now, that kind of surprised me at first because I already knew, well, I know who that is. But then, with you, um, the key wording here is who has not been seen or can be seen. And if you look at Deuteronomy 10, 17, Psalms 136, 2 to 3, and Daniel 2, 47. And then also we want to bring to mind that God's sovereignty is not limited by human freedom, which was a great quote by R.C. Sproul. And I'm going to say it again because I didn't lead into it ideally. God's sovereignty, I want you to think about this. God's sovereignty is not limited by human freedom. Oh, it's our choice. It's our choice if we're saved or not, said the fool to other fools. R.C. Sproul was an incredible protector of truth. I did not believe everything that he taught. I thought he had some, he believed in baby baptism, for instance. But I'm 100% sure baby baptism didn't put him in hell. And he actually had a pretty good argument when you listen to it. Um, so powerful man, but talking about the next time you hear somebody say, well, it's our choice if we're going to become sons of gods or not. If that's the case, nobody would be the sons of God. Not me, not you. It is a gift, and the only reason that we can call ourselves sons or daughters of God is for one reason. It's because we were part of the elect, and it was only by his grace that we're saved. Now in verse uh, 615 of the same chapter, not only is worthy to be praised, but one who has in himself the fullness of all blessing. God is the one who has that the fullness of all blessing. Verse, uh, verses 1 Timothy 5, 15 through 16, by the way, if you like this kind of thing, is a doxology. Definition of doxology is a Christian song or praise which is sung as part of worship service. And guess what? An example of doxology is praise God from whom 
all blessings flow. But that is not the only doxology in the, in the Bible. And 1 Timothy 5, 15 through 16 fits that bill. 15 through 16. Two. Six, right. Yeah, sorry, I meant to. As for riches in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. We're in verse 17 now. Nor to set their hopes on certainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul saw the need to throw in a lesson right here, right before he's signing off. This is kind of interesting. This is a lesson lesson to those that were already currently rich. He had warned earlier, if you'll recall, about the love of money and what that can do to you, and those are the people striving to become rich. But he throws something in here to the rich. It's interesting that no prophet in the Holy Bible was sent to make man rich. That was not the prophet's focus. All prophets, apostles, martyrs, and early church were sent to warn people to get right with God. Here Paul is giving instruction for Timothy, pass this along to those who are already financially well off in their church. There's no room for individuals in the church to put off an air of arrogance to others are putting a false I'm better than you attitude which is a breeding ground for more sin by the way of course our current age tends to evaluate others according to their earthly riches a practice which is a sin's cesspool as well those with excessive money reserves can fall into a sneaky destructive spider web that the love of money can have on an individual. It can lead to one no longer relying on our Lord Jesus Christ and on God for all things, but creates a reliance on self and the instability of the the world's currency. We've seen the world fall apart in the last two years. They're talking about in England, their economy is finally starting to come back a little bit. We can certainly look at ours, and if you want to think that we're coming back, Stay tuned. Let's see where we're headed. Since God is the one who distributes wealth, Paul is pointing out that there is an exception of obedience, expectation of obedience, that those with the capabilities are to be generous and sympathetic to others in need. Are you generous and sympathetic? What do you do when you drive by and there's somebody holding a sign next to your car? You try not to get eye contact with them? Look away, do you justify it to yourself? They'll just use it to go buy booze anyway. It's not where our heart is to be. Our heart is to have an opportunity to share the Lord Jesus Christ with them. And, you know, if we can help them, help them. But there's so many, Gary. I think those are individuals who are just ready to give you a blessing. If you have the right mind and attitude towards them, maybe you help them financially. Maybe they don't take credit cards, so you can't. But at least you can pass them on with Godspeed. 
to them, which is their ultimate important need anyway. We're also getting dumped on by the world. Our borders are non-existent. Have you thought that maybe, just maybe, that God is not totally happy with the way that we go out and spread the word to the world? So he's bringing the world to us. Maybe that's why these people are coming here. We have truth. It's the best thing we can give them. The motivation for those who practice such generosity has tremendous upside that will last for all eternity. This isn't a game, though. Good works are to be drenched in piety and charity, not in, I want to store up more in heaven. I want to have three more jewels than my friend Bill does. What we do is sharing of resources now is God's will for us. The number one reason why we have wealth is to share with others in need. And when we do that, it does have a huge eternal payback. But that shouldn't be our motivation. Our motivation should be out of the love to Christ and the love that he has shown us. It's a wonderful reminder that we as believers are to be living day to day with a Christian worldview, and that's so important. Don't evaluate what's going on by what you see and in today's mindset. Go broader. That gives us a solid foundation understanding of what may appear to be important now, but have a clearer vision on what is much more meaningful for eternity. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Does this sound familiar? Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 7. Part you always have to come back to, because I've taught people through this is we must decide in our heart. There's to be thinking about how we're going to be giving. It's just not willy-nilly. You know what? Pastor gave a great sermon this morning. I think I'll put a little extra in the box. It's not how we're to give. Our giving is to be done on something that we've planned out. We've planned it out. We've thought about it. We've asked God for wisdom. That giving, whether it be to the church or to taking care of the poor or other things that we have an opportunity to impact. Rich rewards today pale in comparison to the glorious reimbursement. Those rich and good works of charity receive in heaven for eternity. Giving is an act of love. Get this, it's towards God when we show charity. And others and which is not to be confused as a scheme to buy a friendship with God. I know this is hard to believe, but he's not impressed whether we have money or not in our thing. But he's not even impressed with the fact that I have two goats. He doesn't care. Impresses me, but then impress him. Christians reminded that the money he possesses is not his own. And I think that's where we get into trouble. It is given to us as a stewardship. And Timothy, 
Everything you have at this church is for you to steward it, to take care of it, to make sure that you use it for its ultimate purpose, and you haven't been doing that. John Wesley said, do all the good you can by the means you can in all the ways that you can in all the places that you can at all the times you can to all the people you can as long as ever you can. Again, that was John, John Wesley. So in wrapping up, uh, we're in verse 20 now. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent um, babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. I, I found it amazing. This is what he put at the end after having run through it earlier. The O in front of Timothy uh, expresses a sincere plea for Timothy to stay focused on the Lord's work that is ahead of him. The deposits include the souls, the souls that he is responsible for, God's truth, the resources in that church, and opportunities God has graciously given to Timothy and to that church. So I might say, do we take full advantage of what God has given us here at our church? Paul warns Timothy to be cautious when it comes to man's philosophical wisdom and knowledge, which often opposes the truth of God. Oh, do we ever live in an age of this? For instance, some have become very proud of their learning and labeled it psychology and science. In turn, has led many and I overemphasize many astray. Let me give you an example. Many churches today don't take the beginning of the Bible as actual. Because science says it couldn't have happened that way. To fall into place on what they're talking about with the, with the world being millions of years old, by the way, would take far more miracles than what's mentioned at the beginning of Genesis. We only have to believe in one power, one source. Well, the rest of it falls into place. God spoke everything into existence. Oh, no, no, says man. Took millions of years to form this. I wonder how many miracles that took over millions of years, if that were true. I wish I had the faith of those unbelievers. Not. For when science and psychology oppose the truth of the gospel, and this we need to remember, their teachings are false because if they were true, they would approve of the gospel and consent to it. So when science seems to oppose the Bible, I don't get nervous anymore. When psychology opposes what's taught in the Bible, I don't get nervous anymore because I've seen time and time and time again it's foolishness that gets changed, by the way. Do you know psychology? In my lifetime, the philosophy of psychology has changed tons and tons of times. And what is truth? Those who are attracted to placing science at a higher authority than Scripture are in great danger of erring in the faith 
those who support reason above faith are in danger of leaving the faith. And I bet you all know people who've gone down that trail. These closing verses bring out the great dangers of the so-called intellectualism, rationalism, modernism, liberalism, and many other isms, which can be disregarded or wanting down Christ and his word, God's word. Bottom line, we're called to be students of truth, obey to holy instruction, and faithful to God's words, willing to live and die by it. One more time, because this is next to the last sentence. Bottom line, we are called to be students of truth. Get into the word. We're to be obedient to holy instruction. Not, that sounds like a good idea. How do you know you're on the right path? By the way, obedience to holy instruction. It's when we get on our knees and we pray to God and say, I can't do this. Help me. Help me be more obedient. And faithful to God's word. And will we live, and as Roman mentioned this morning, will we die by it? Or will we be like what Peter did? So finally, it is by God's grace that we can keep his people on the straight and narrow. Paul did a wonderful job of addressing so much here in love, but also some toughness. And I pray that we all have the wisdom to do the same thing with each other as we continue to worship together, we continue to glorify our Lord better and that we also have a commitment to each, each other. So what a gospel, what a savior we have. Huh? So we'll pray. Our Father God, we are astounded at the clarity of the teaching in 1 Timothy. We're also astounded at uh, how many areas Paul could have been talking directly to us, and we know circumstances in our life where we have a ways to go. We do, Lord, fall and rely on your grace, but we do ask that we don't fall so much on our grace that we allow sin to really become the ruler of the activities we do in our life, our minds, and in our hearts. We also pray, Father God, that you give us this mind of Christ and that we learn to know when we have the mind of Christ or the mind of ourself. We pray for our pastor's family as they're traveling. We pray for their safety. We also pray that they're able to relax, enjoy things, have well-deserved rest, as they have their hands full, not only with full-time ministry, but also with uh, family health issues. But Father God, we know that those things too are in your control. We thank you that you are a sovereign God, and we thank you that we have you to rely on at all times. We just ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks for coming.